Hello, gozaimasu. It's Zach Languichichi. I'm so popular. And today, to celebrate the Valentine's holiday, we are discussing love, illusion, reality, and Edward Albee's wonderful play and its film adaptation, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I have two very special guests on the show today. Who are you? I'm Josh, also known as Tragic Fruit on the interwebs, co-host of Evil Thespian podcast. <laughs> Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm great. <laughs> and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm Maddie, um, also co-host of the Evil Thespian podcast. And yeah. Hi, girls. What are you Hi. two doing? Um, I am drinking some red wine. I don't know actually what wine it is, but it's in my wines by Jennifer Glass that I got from my English teacher for my 21st birthday, wearing my Chromatica t-shirt because it's, I'm feeling very achy today. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm sitting down drinking a beer and staring i mean doing this but also staring out the window (laughs) incredible i just opened a beer as well to get in the in the boozy tone and i have elizabeth taylor white diamonds i was debating between sparkling white diamonds and passion but white diamonds has a has a light air of dignity so i'm gonna a, a, a layer of dignity that quickly decays into death so She's the perfect person to have a fragrance line. She like, sure is. She's the only celebrity that basically deserves to have a fragrance that's, you know, steadfast and actually holds up. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> My last question for the two of you is why do you follow me? Um, I followed you during the Twink Rev summer oh. um, when I was, I think... Uh, I don't know who followed who first, but I, I think at the time that you fo- I followed you and you followed me, I was uh, going by Larry Kramer's Love Child. Uh-huh. And so then over time, I, and then over time, I discovered that we have like this affinity for Larry Kramer and are very influenced by him. And then um, when I discovered that you have a podcast, I listened in and I absolutely fell in love with you and everything that you say is correct (laughs) thank you (laughs) i'm very flattered yeah um yeah i'll just be honest i think same with josh but then also i came sliding down through the red scare pipeline so Mm -hmm. yeah that's basically it (laughs) well i am really happy to have you on evil thespian is a really fascinating wonderful project and um, Josh is definitely someone I have a lot of affinity with, um, because of our shared taste in, in gay art and literature, and, um, I remember when I was in college and, like, reading Larry Kramer and Andrew Holleran and all of these people, I had the habit of thinking I was, like, the only person in the world who had read these books, and nobody understood the value of these great gay authors, and mm-hmm. so, especially, like, in the early days when it was mostly just, you know, political posting and what have you on on like the twink rev associated circuits Mm -hmm. it was such a delight and a joy to have josh uh to share with uh these aesthetic experiences with and i love that most of our relationship is conducted over instagram dms just like yes cleaning and (laughs) boots whenever we like post screenshots (laughs) of like of whatever it is we're reading so 
Evil Thespian is a great project. You two are Thank you. working Thank very you. hard to make theater interesting in the way that it deserves to be seen. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, so many performative and obnoxious uh, rejections of the art form of theater. And to see the two of you approach it with such grace and intelligence and without the cloying aspects of what people imagine the theater kid would kind of be. I think you're doing something really important and I'm very excited to have you both on. Thank Thank you. you. It's an an honor to be here. Yeah, I'm super excited. Yeah, me too. Um, I've been wanting to talk about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, for a very long time and keen I'm So Popular listeners will know it plays a a light role in my uh, season one finale and as we approach the end of season two and uh i'm peeling the layers between podcast and reality slowly back Mm -hmm. um i want to imagine uh love a little bit Mm -hmm. and what exactly it is because i'm not so sure and i thought the way i would kind of question this is uh have either of you been in love before many many times (laughs) (laughs) oh if i had a nickel (laughs) I like so to think times. that I have been in love because I have such an impulse for romance, but I don't think that I actually have. Yeah, mm-hmm. I feel very much the same. There is something appealing about infatuation and romance that I get so swept up in that sometimes I think my feelings about like true love or like what it is are completely indiscernible because I'm so swept up in in the whirlwind of affection exactly and like sometimes i feel as though love is sort of an artifice for like these primal urges that we have and that like it isn't actually like how uh we like truly feel like it's sort of like based around uh the Our, urge to procreate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like civilized, civilized understandings of like what yeah. love is. So I'm, yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm engaged, and like I sometimes I'm like still so confused about love as a concept because like I've been in many different forms of love and experienced different kinds of dynamics in a relationship. So sometimes I'm just like what really even is it you know i've been like i've been with my fiance for about seven years and like wow we've been sort of on and off throughout our journey together but um it's interesting because i do feel like the energy levels in our love uh areas and like our uh impulses it changes constantly and like you're kind of left like so confused because sometimes your love energy is like are really like skyrocketing and like sometimes Mm. you're like I don't love anything I don't love anybody I hate everyone um and then I also think like sometimes when I feel attracted or infatuated with someone or I get in a relationship with someone you always wonder like how much of this love feeling that I'm experiencing has to do with my association with the person like do I love this person because this person is a positive reflection of myself or you know it's a it's very interesting I think it just all comes down to like a balance and like you just have to go with your intuition I think mostly but still I mean still to this day like very very interesting concept Mm -hmm. and I think it's you know especially interesting for gay men because Mm -hmm. we don't have 
you know, our, our, somehow our development or our genetics have misfired as to uh, replace our desire to procreate onto the wrong subject. Yeah. So we still have, like, that desire, but it's, like, so proliferated through uh, both, like, the cultural development of gay people and, like, the way that, like, gay identity is, like, a a mere, like, social construction that we are, you know, raised into, as well as uh, our desires not having, like, a proper target. So the idea of love gets, like, even buried, like, deeper behind uh, bandages of absurdity and distance that... Um, sometimes I feel like I'm just like swimming in a, in a swamp and everything around me is, uh, gunk and I have no idea like where to grasp (laughs) love from there. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. All of the older gay men I know that have like very long-term partners, whether like they're married or just like partners in life together, there's almost like a feeling of not only are they romantically entangled with each other, but there's a weird like feeling of like a friendly brotherhood almost that I don't see with like heterosexual couples. It's almost like this very strange masculine camaraderie that you see with Mm -hmm. male homosexual couples um, that you don't see with anyone else. And like, to me, that's very interesting. Yeah. Because I think like, uh, we're not necessarily like about uh emotionality i guess yeah uh although like i'm very like i consider like i feel like my biggest like revelation that i had this past year was that i'm a torch song gay like i love like sad (laughs) i love sad music and like sweeping emotional Mm -hmm. songs Mm Um, and so, and I, I do want to like settle down and like get married mm-hmm. very much like Larry Kramer in that sense. And so, um, uh, yeah, I don't know, but traditionally archetypally, I feel like gay men just don't want that emotional connection. They're very good at like, just like getting in and out and doing yes. the thing, you yeah. know, they're task oriented. Exactly. <laughs> All men are task oriented. That's what, yeah. I, yeah. Apollonian. Civilization would have collapsed. <laughs> yeah, civilization would have collapsed if they, they men were not task oriented. Yeah, they must do the task. So yeah, and it, it's it's interesting as I get older because I at one point I, I was kind of convinced that I did understand what love was when I was in a you know a relationship for three years and at one point it had kind of like reached a a quiet tenor of that kind of camaraderie that Maddie just mentioned mm-hmm. and. I, I thought that because I was imagining myself to be, like, satisfied with that kind of um, more passive and, and slow sort of um, love for one another, that that's what love was. And then I, I think I ultimately realized that maybe that is love, but it wasn't mm-hmm. enough for me. And now I'm wondering, like, as, you know, I get older, and like, halfway through my 20s now, and it's like you know, trying to imagine if I'm going to be able to, like, have a partner to, like, lead a life with successfully. It's, like, what is the, what's the balance (laughs) to find there to, like, make, to make it work? I don't know. I always feel like it's almost like balance is impossible. I'm very lucky in that my parents have been married my whole life and, like, mine too. they they have a very um, happy marriage, but my mom always tells me that 
you know, a lot of her friends, she, she will always tell me, you know, I go out with my girlfriends sometimes and they always complain about their husbands and like say, you know, constantly like berating and like slandering their husband's name, like talking about how they don't even like to sleep with them. And she always tells me like, you just have to make an effort that is sometimes very painful to really, I mean, not force it, but essentially rekindle, separate yourself, have time on your own, be independent, and then come back to each other. Like there has to be a home base. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it it's mostly about work. And like, that's really the, <laughs> the disappointment, I think, that you encounter when you get into a relationship that's very you know, libidinally charged, very sweeping. And then once everything, you know, the excitement settles down and you don't feel like you're on cocaine anymore, you're like, oh shit, like I actually need to work to sustain something. And that's very, very difficult for people to reckon with. Mm -hmm. um, and like, yeah, and like you have to kind of just like make a decision with yourself. Like, do I really want to work, do put the work in to make this work for a long period of time is that like something that I'm willing to put my time in for mm -hmm. so yeah I don't know it's just about like making a decision I think and it's like super hard um I think that's like part of like yeah the like when they say like an orgasm is like simultaneously like a little death you know death. like yeah <laughs> like once you like <laughs> once you experience the <laughs> orgasm then like you come down from it like you're coming down like from a drug and you're like completely in a different realm of consciousness and you have to like contend with everything you just experienced and you're like what the hell like am I doing mm -hmm. so do you but do you think that you like could settle down do you like right now I don't know like I I keep thinking about this as well um mm -hmm. and it's like it's difficult to imagine because I think you know like you were saying, you're, you're a torch song gay. Like, you've realized that you're, yeah. like, into, like, the extreme emotionality and, like, the most, like, harrowing, like, kind of feelings that you can uh, access through, like, art or music. And I've, you know, been like that for quite a while as well. And at the same time, I'm, like, also addicted to, like, um, you know, harrowing personal experiences. You know, I was just talking on the Sirens Patron Patreon episode about, like, some of the, like, stuff I've, like, you know, encountered and... Um, every, like, horrible, like, sexual interaction I have, like, does not disturb me or bother me. It, like, enthralls mm -hmm. me and, like, makes me, like, feel, like, more, like, a, like, in touch with what's, um, resting beneath, like, the mesh of society. Like, Henry Miller yeah. always yeah. talks about, like, the mesh of the world and that underneath it is, um, this, um, molten explosive core that... Uh, exists in a, a way that can't be iterated. It's, like, this primordial thing. And yeah. so whenever, I, you know, I'm, like, fucking random people or, like, <laughs> you know, like, th throwing myself into an idea of love without having any idea what I'm doing, it feels like I'm kind of reaching towards that, you know, that molten core. And I'm so, like, my whole life has, like, been, like, kind of around that idea that I just, like, don't know if I'm going to ever be able to properly rest on the on the mm -hmm. mesh as it were yeah I I feel I definitely um feel the same way when you were talking about like you're very attracted to like very intense emotional experiences mm -hmm. I'm kind of the same way like even my, even my fiance will like 
tell you that like I'm a very rebellious person like I'm always the girl who's like stumbling out of the club with her boyfriend <laughs> and his drunk is like you can't fucking tell me what to do I can uh, do whatever too. I want <laughs> me like, too. I'm, I'm always the person that I'm just like I can dance with whoever I want and you can't tell like I'm constantly like getting yeah. into trouble um one time like a couple years ago, like before we were engaged, I completely like went out with a bunch of friends, disappeared into the night. And my, I completely, like my phone was off. I completely was like a missing person. Um, and my boyfriend or my fiance was like, I was searching the police scanners. I didn't know where you were. You didn't text me. And I was like, sorry. Like I was just out having fun and like living life. But obviously I, uh, you know, got into a lot of trouble for that. So but yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard because like that impulse is like always in me. I'm just like, I just want to be hysterical somewhere, but I I can't. <laughs> That's so <laughs> you know? sweet that Paul would search the police scanners for you though. I mean, my God. Yeah, he's very, he's always very concerned about my well-being. So, I mean, like I said, there's a balance. Aww. Like I need to like maintain, I need to let him know where I am and that I'm safe if I go like, somewhere without a male chaperone um so yeah definitely because we've been in, we've gotten to situations where i've just like i'm out and about i'm living my life and uh you know not, one thing leads to another and i'm, I'm just gone i'm like a, you know i'm having a dark night of of the soul mm-hmm. <laughs> the prices of the sexual revolution i know <laughs> what are you gonna do so <laughs> No, this is all very true. Like, there's a, a Jesse Lanza song about when you, like, get into a fight, and then for no reason, but, like, there's, like, some bizarre impulse in you. You just, like, keep spinning into it and, like, trying to, like, make it bigger and ripping it apart because uh, it has that huge emotional, like, kick. Like, I think the essence of what love might be is two people trying to bring their borders as as close to one another as possible because of course you'll never be able to ever melt your ego into somebody else's but it's about like trying to get those lines to you know blend as as easily as possible and like really create like a a shared experience like through two people Mm -hmm. and maybe like that kind of experience is like actually something that can pierce like the the mesh of society and the illusion of you know our day-to-day lives and uh, can really like bring two souls together in that you know core of experience. So when you know your soul is like so tightly entwined with someone else's, it's like of course you like want to like tease it and like mm-hmm. fight and like cause conflict because it makes you feel like more alive. It does. You know, it's it's weird. Um, I've been doing. I have to do all this work before I get married because my grandfather is a min- is a protestant minister and he is going to be officiating my wedding uh-huh. so we have to do we had to like sit down with him do all of this mm-hmm. like consulting <laughs> and uh it, it's just very interesting like when he was talking about um the commandment thou shall not covet he was saying like yes. you know like <laughs> if you walk <laughs> if you walk across like campus and like you see someone that you're like really attracted to it you basically essentially that's not like coveting someone coveting you know would be he he basically says like that's the most important uh, commandment as it applies to marriage because um you essentially have to remind yourself that you covet the other person you're not coveting the other thing so 
definitely a lot of like, <laughs> you know, mechanical functions that like go into um, thinking about that. And um, yeah, super, super interesting. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Like there is a dark side to love. You it know? is. Like, it's very dark. The, 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 like the prime example that I always turn to is Phaedra by Jean Racine. Uh, the the mother who falls in love with or the stepmother who falls in love with her stepson, mm -hmm. and and uh, it, it, it like it's just it's so beautiful but also like painful to watch because you know in the Ted Hughes adaptation uh, there's a line that says like the curse of Venus is fatal you know like like the fact that like uh, she has like been possessed by her attraction to this this man that she's not supposed to be in love with mm -hmm. and um and the fact that he has like sworn off all women but then he he becomes possessed by love too like it, it's it's and the 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 butting of heads that that causes you know it, mm -hmm. it, it it isn't all just sunshine and roses as you know we would love it to be. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, and sometimes I like, not even in a, in a romantic sense, there's so many things I love that cause me such severe pain. Like I love yeah. drugs, I love alcohol, mm -hmm. I love looking at myself, I love my own vanity. Like, uh, like these are like things that are like inherently evil and have caused so much destruction in my life, <laughs> but I can't help myself but be so insanely drawn by like these things that um you know have a positive um give give me like positive things in my life but also like give me extremely negative things in my life well, yeah because i think that love is um it, it reminds one of death like i think mm -hmm. it's very yes. closely entwined with it yeah. and especially you know we were talking a, a little bit about how you know the work you have to put in to like mm -hmm. make you know, love work and to like make a, a relationship between two souls function. And when you see that it's like failing after you had that initial kick of like the primordial desire and like that frenzied like urge for the other. And then when you see that decaying, like, you know, some plant that's been like left in the darkness for too long and you have to like, you know, tend to it and like work on it, mm -hmm. you're like immediately reminded of like a sense of that everything is uh, merely passing and will die as well. And to, you know, maintain a relationship with the other when at any time it could, you know, come crashing down because of one party's behavior. I, I do imagine that it does feel like quite like cosmic and essential to the soul. Yeah. What? I, well, yeah, it confronts you with your own mortality uh, because especially if you are dedicating your everyday routine uh, with somebody, um, that could completely shatter in a single moment. Yeah. And that makes me, and that's kind of enough to like keep me away <laughs> from the, like uh, the, the earthly desires, you know? So, um, but yeah, it is, it is so strange because it does constantly confront you with your own mar mortality and you're always reminded that mm -hmm. you're that the, the clock is ticking essentially yeah well and that tracks why like after aids happened like there was such a push for gay marriage you know and, mm -hmm. and even that is so That's like true. 
controversial of like, well, should gays, I mean, it feels like it's settled, but like, I don't actually think that it is settled. I don't like, think so either. <laughs> I, I think that there is, I, I do think that like marriage should be between a man and a woman. <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. and I'm a gay man, and I I think man should women or marriage should be between a man and woman, and um I, I don't know I want I take the pallian view of like that like we need to be like looking at like what benefits marriage has to mm-hmm. then to like make it applicable to like all people in a sense of like I would much rather have like a civil partnership personally yeah I I completely agree and I've been thinking about this a lot recently because when I was with my last partner I was imagining that I wanted to be like you know quote married unquote like I I wanted Mm -hmm. to like do a domestic thing and I was even thinking like one day I like wanted to like have children someday and it's like it's it's definitely hard to swallow this as a gay person but like Mm -hmm. I think that true love between men is a altogether different social experience and and a different kind of relationship and when I think about Edward Albee and his you know very long-standing relationship or Larry Kramer um or you know any of these you know classic writers from that that time and like the the homosexual lives that they led it's like I don't I don't see those men as like married or even Tennessee Mm. Williams and his partner I see them as like making a commitment to share life with one another and i i'm positive that it's love but Mm -hmm. it's it's an altogether like different shape that i think actually might be more valuable than of course doing the plastic white picket fence like ken doll pete butt chug shit oh yeah absolutely i i even have like um like a i had a like professor who's a boomer and he has like a friend essentially that like he shares his life with but they just like live together essentially they're like life partners and sustainable and Mm -hmm. there's like a brotherly connection there but they have their own separate lives and like have their own separate sexual endeavors so to me that makes so much sense like being so task oriented you know it seems like it's much more sustainable I you know like give props to like all of these men that like actually gay men that like actually got married committed have committed to the bit i kind of even don't believe it but (laughs) you know i think it also like speaks to like how like gay activism has changed in a sense because like gay activism is like beating down the door to like get into these institutions Mm -hmm. whereas like those gay men of edward albee's time understood that like homosexuality was um dissident and a diversion away from the norm and so that like they were off doing their own thing and they they thought that that was good enough you know and like and and i just yeah it's 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 not gonna i don't think it's going to create like a vibrant gay I mean, it's killed it entirely. And I honestly think that HIV AIDS, I mean, this is is kind of an obvious statement, but HIV AIDS is the Twin Peaks Judy of gay reality. Like, it's breathing out that smog and creating so many destructive, like, little bob orbs or whatever. It's like, the push for marriage equality is, like, the first thing that, like, really started to, like, end gay life as a beautiful artistic relationship between 
two men who defy all heterosexual odds to live a, like, truly, like, masculine Apollonian existence with each other and, like, create, like, a, a shared system of, of beliefs and function off that. But in the shadow of, like, constant death, uh, people ran to um, pre-established social conditions like marriage thinking that it would save them. And all that's done is like a Foucault, like proliferation of desire into totally like malfunctioning, like warped social roles. And mm -hmm. honestly, like any like gay married couple, that's not like the kind of like Larry Kramer partnership. Like anytime I see something like that, it's like abject and so like reeking of death and like fallacy that I get deeply uncomfortable and i i get scared <laughs> yeah. like if i'm ever gonna yeah. be able to like recreate like the the what i think is truly beautiful love between men in this kind of climate that is even beginning to touch japan without gay marriage here at all and i try to like be understanding of gay men at that time like facing the the extreme weight of mm -hmm. AIDS like I feel like I probably if I were coming up at that time like I probably also would feel that way oh yeah but now that I'm removed and I'm a generation later I feel as though um it's time to like pick up the pieces and like try to <laughs> build something new again mm -hmm. yeah and also like it seems like there was like in, in within the last 20 years there's always been like a huge push to see gay men specifically as equal to a heterosexual sensibility, but and the it's just not true. It's just so not <laughs> no. true. And the whole reason why people flock to homosexuals is because they proliferate our sensibilities and they're so novel and they like offend us and are able to be over articulate about things we cannot be. So right. I just feel like that should be heralded more than the things that they lack. And the, the this time when we were supposed to like see gay people as like victims, like does not like service the incredible amount of like culture and literature and artistic artifacts. It's like kind of a missed opportunity almost. And in some ways, I think this is even happening to actually not in some ways, I just think outright that this is happening to straight people as well, especially as I think yeah. about like, sorry, Zoomers, the worst topic <laughs> in the world. But like, yeah. I find th that Zoomers like don't like fuck, like they're not like erotically inclined at all. Their <laughs> sense mm -hmm. of emotionality and their willingness to submit to the domination of love, like this like bizarre, like, uh, like, subterranean force that suddenly like erupts out of you and then like rapes you into doing weird things it's like mm -hmm. zoomers are totally like closed off to like surrendering to that kind of extremity and i think that like there's just so many layers of society and the internet and so much constant information piling up on top of people that they're even more afraid to let something like love or like creepy animal desire or perversion or anything else like touch them and like move them in some sort of sublime way yeah the kids are not all right no. <laughs> <laughs> i'm so because i mean i'm a teacher and so i am interacting with them on a daily basis and I just like recently. What's the, what's the report? What's the report? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something happened recently in our school district where um, a teacher said the N word. 
because he was being called the N-word by a student and he was like, oh, are you calling me the N-word? And, uh-huh. um, and the kids like are so like zeroing in on that. And like, they like protested, they sat out of school, like in the gym for like an hour protesting. And I'm like, why are you focusing on that when like there are so many other things, there's, there's like a wealth of life experiences to be, be had at that time. And you're doing that, like, like, and, and that, that is a fa- yeah, that is a failure of like public education that they are not exposing young people to this broad wealth of human history and art that they, they that that is what they zero in on. Yeah, and I'll I'll Sorry be willing to like no I'll I'll like throw myself under the bus like the best parts of my life and my young life or or when I was like at parties and I was like screeching the N word like listening to like rap music and it's just like in retrospect it's like okay whatever but it's like that's not like a thing like somebody should be reduced to and like nobody should just be reduced to like. Or, or like associate a certain uh, cultural item with uh, a lack of power or like extreme like victimhood or something. But yeah, it's so, so interesting to me. Because it's very the, weird. The social role of victimhood and to be the one like being acted upon, that is actually like the place in which you receive the most power. Like from being... Exactly. Being, you know bullied or discriminated against or being called a slur or being you know offended by something that in this current moment gives you the most social credence and is thus like the most like secure social role so of course people flee to that and in the process they desecrate all the things that make life beautiful and fascinating things like love because they don't want to like have to surrender themselves to some mysterious like uncomfortable frightening force like we've been talking about how like love reminds you of death and it's like Mm -hmm. a scary experience and it makes you crazy and do Mm -hmm. weird things and question the mortality that you have and zoomers run to the role of victimhood because that is where they have a safe and powerful like sense of ability to act on the rest of reality and Mm -hmm. I've talked about this quite a bit in, like, my recent episodes about, like, this, like, sensual universe that, like, just exists a little bit beyond ourselves that we can't ever, like, truly literalize. It's, like, you know, in the in the distance and can only be accessed through, like, extreme abjection or sublimity. And the entire role of Zoomers getting pissed off about the N-word and camping out in the gym or, like, anything else, or it's all to make that universe as inaccessible as possible and to put as many layers of illusion there so that you can never touch that truly beautiful sense of being alive. Right, yeah. like, they have they have no idea that, like, this is what they're leaving behind for future no. generations to, like, to look to. Like, because they have yeah. no sense of, like, a past or a future. No yeah. future. It's so sad. It's weird, and... Ugh. I there's been so many times where I've like fallen desperately into 
the like dastardly evil uh love black hole where I've just like fallen in love with someone so intensely to the point where I basically am like a different person and it's amazing because now I look back on that time and I have like so many beautiful sentimental memories with like songs that I was listening to at the time things that I was doing I you know I even like I I even like I mean this is kind of perverted but for the long the longest time I would save like love letters I would receive from different boyfriends and like greeting cards and stuff like that because I just like to look back on those things and it's just really touches you when you look back on your life and you think of yourself that your younger self that was like very young and in love and very full of life and novelty Mm. and it just um, makes you feel like oh like when I do uh, think back on those times uh, whether you know I was very horny or very in a lot of pain or I was suffering a lot of heartbreak I'm like well at least I experienced it and I lived a full life and I had many different loves you know I I felt like such a huge dynamic range of emotions um and I like you cannot help but be like so thankful for that yeah there's nothing better than to you know be ripped apart by these sensations of love and desire and everything beyond yourself to just be totally destroyed by it and to have to like live in the shrapnel and feel like you've really lived and done something and broken all of those illusions away and had a purely emotional experience. Yeah. And also like, I don't know, but I don't know why, but like, I guess it's, it has to do with like the lack of power and the lack of control that makes you horny. But the times I felt the most intense about love has always been uh, times where I felt unrequited love. So if I had like a crush on somebody, (laughs) you kind of like make this like fantasy in your head about the other person or or like an ideal about somebody and you're like oh my god and like it's almost like you write a fantasy erotic novel in your mind and then project sex it onto dreams. yeah it's like sex <laughs> dreams constantly and then you project it onto that person and it becomes this weird uh cat and mouse game of like being on your hands and knees and begging somebody to love you that can possibly Mm. not return it and uh it's like so romantic and painful at the same time Mm -hmm. (laughs) unrequited love has been really truly one of the most compelling forces in my life and um one of the i'm so popular like uh you know, iceberg figures, like, it's, like, three layers deep or whatever that continually, like, haunts the show is, like, the four fiery weeks I, like, spent with, a like, a bisexual man, like, having, like, endless, like, sex with him only for it to be, like, ripped away. And, um, the extremity of that... Bisexuals are so evil. They are. They're the worst. They are so evil, all of them. (laughs) Like, the most, like... It, they literally are all like fucking Paul Verhoeven villains. Every they single are. bisexual yes. is like a oh. literally like a Paul Verhoeven villain. And like when I felt oh. like so thoroughly like consumed by that man, and I like lived for like months, just like my entire emotional existence is like being like pulled apart like taffy by like the memories I had of like fucking this guy. It's like, oh my god, that is real like that pain and that emotionality is like how you break through all these fucking illusions and like find what the core of life is 
I, I had this, I had a similar experience with a woman that I was in love with and I was, you know, sleeping with, and it was the same evil bisexual experience where mm-hmm. we were like entangled <laughs> in this very intense, it, and it was only literally like, it was a two month period that felt like two years. Like it was this weird unrequited situation when, where we were like spending so much time together and it was just like such a tender connection and eventually she just kind of peeled away like fizzled away stopped talking to me and like started dating somebody else and it was like extremely painful and strange and weird mm. and but during this time it was like the most weird intense psychedelic experience <laughs> so strange I've never had a bisexual experience. So you don't, don't, don't do it. I'm saved, I guess. (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) All you have to say is Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, George Siegel. Sandy Dennis, Edward Alves, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. After that, all you can say is incredible, 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 Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was originally a play by Edward Albee in 1962, one of my favorite homosexual playwrights, and was later adapted by Mike Nichols of The Graduate Fame in 1996 with a fascinating screen adaptation starring Elizabeth Taylor and her on-and-off-again dear love Richard Burton, uh, as well as uh, George Seagal and Sandy Dennis. And... I have always had a deep fascination with Albie, but it was especially strong for me on the first few years of my college experience where I bought a really beat-up copy of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf uh, featuring Mm. George and Martha with their heads cut off. Uh, And I I read it in one sitting on my uh, way to go see Kanye West's The Life of Pablo, uh, St. Pablo tour. So... I have always found him to be an unwieldy cosmic force, and uh, considering our discussion about love and reality and piercing through the mesh of society to get to the core of the universe, I feel like Edward Albee is just the right person to do the job. So I'm a little curious about what both of your relationship with uh, Albee and this play and film are. Well, (laughs) I had... To do a scene from it in high school in my drama class, oh. I did the scene <laughs> where George tell, tells Martha that the, the boy is dead, their son, <laughs> and um, I was complete shit. And um, and I don't think that any high schooler should touch this play, at least <laughs> act in it. They should read it, but don't act in it. Uh-huh. Um, and I 
yeah, but I, I am enamored with this play in the sense of like, I love the game that they play with each other, that they're trying to constantly one up each other. Mm -hmm. um, it's very sexy. Um, and I find Edward Albee to be such an interesting figure within the American theater because uh, he just, I love his voice. Like his speaking voice is very unique to me. He kind of sounds like uh, Kermit the Frog to me a little mm -hmm. bit, <laughs> but his writing voice is also very interesting too. And his, his biography is, um, it's, it's, yeah, he, has a very troubled past with his parents mm -hmm. and it, it comes out in so many interviews he like talks about like uh <laughs> like we just weren't compatible like his adopted parents like we just weren't compatible yeah. and mm -hmm. the, the, like it's so weird to like talk about your adopted family that way i feel like but yeah he, he yeah. channels it into his his art in a way that is very compelling yeah, I I never had to read Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in college, but it's always been in my peripheral, and I really couldn't. I've I really connect with Albie because he's always said he's ha he had to go to like five different schools. He had like such a troubled history with the school system, and I always have like heavily related to him because I barely graduated high school and college so um i really relate to him as sort of like this lonely like writer who's just like trying to like uh proliferate uh and you know articulate something very sublime so i really relate to him and i think he has a very interesting like unique uh place as it refers to like you know like josh said like his familial pathologies and you can kind of see that in like the sub subconscious of this play absolutely have you read his play three tall women no i haven't you should read it because it's it's him trying to reckon with his adoptive mother mm -hmm. uh -huh. and it's her in different stages of her life so the the one that's about to die is like talking to her younger self and her middle-aged self and it's it's sublime beautiful very destiny beautiful of me isn't it yeah <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah. I find that Edward Albee is one of the most powerful depictors of women in all of the literary canon, and it's because he is a gay man and is uh, really just writing about gay sensibility and his own perspective uh, and then channeling it through these characters. So Virginia Woolf is often read as uh, actually just a stand-ins for four petty gay men. Um, I am neither here mm -hmm. nor there about that reading, but what I do think is that because Albie has such a powerful gay sensibility, uh, the way he writes women and men and the creation of the world in his plays is that it doesn't really matter what he like might be like trying to signify because his uh, like inquit like desires like come out so clearly in these characters that it doesn't matter if they're a sign or not. They're merely like emotional expressions from him. And uh, as gay men have the theatrical, distance between uh the intent of their lives and the actual absurdity of it uh the way that he approaches like female characters becomes just an incredible holy joke and ultimately all the more true for it because he sees their irrationality right i think yeah, <laughs> like i think he, he, sees, he sees the irrationality their, of nature the irrationality of nature but and also like 
their insane evil capabilities to manipulate and drive the conversation in a way where like i mean obviously martha one of like the main what basically i consider the main character of the of the play she is able to sort of drive the scene in an all-powerful way to the point where she gets away with not exposing any sort of vulnerability whatsoever. Even if she is kind of put in a moment where she's proved to be wrong, she's kind of able to switch and bait the situation and completely drive the whole conversation and turn it on someone at any moment. And that's like such an incredible, amazing gift that women have that they're able to deny any kind of responsibility, you know, pivot it onto somebody else um, and be incredibly calculated and conniving on a moment's notice. Um, that's very on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Know? And it's kind of because I think Albie has that homosexual wit about him. Like he has like oh, yeah. that, you know, disaffected and um, sort of despondent worldview. So when he creates like the homosexual perspective in his art and he's describing these, you know, women and, and uh, heterosexual couples, he infuses them with that absolutely sublime use of language and wit. And uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is a play with only virtually four characters. And it's... um. George and Martha and their two guests, uh, Nick and Honey, right? Neither of their names are said <laughs> yes. in the play, I think. But um, it's a one long drunken night of the soul in their house. And uh, George and Martha go through a series of increasingly more disturbing social games of illusions and lies and mistruths and uh, deception in this uh, sort of cosmic stage of the of the spousal affairs. And uh, by the end of the long night, you uh, have to pierce through all the illusions and see the crumbling core within it. And the whole play is just so disturbing and uncomfortable. It's honestly a horror movie. Mm -hmm. It is. It's so uncomfortable. It really reminds me of those couples that you meet, especially George and Martha. They really remind me of those couples that you come in contact with that are so cringy because... It's those situations where one is constantly making the other as the butt of every single joke. Mm -hmm. And I always get really embarrassed for them because not only is it disrespectful to throw your partner under the bus in front of your friends, but it's so obvious that that person is just taking this opportunity to make ironic jabs in mixed company because they don't have the balls to be sincere about how they really feel in the relationship behind closed doors. Um, it's like so obvious when like couples are extremely rude to each other in public that they're extremely unhappy in the relationship and they just don't have the balls to confront how they really feel right. in private. And I, I always feel like it should be the other way around. You should always be very conservative with how you feel about your spouse in public. And then behind closed doors, you should be ball busting each other constantly and bullying each other. Yeah. Um, that's like a healthy way to go about it. And it's like really sad when you see couples like um, Martha and, and George, it, to me, they really read as a, a, like an old homosexual couple because mm -hmm. they just disclose immediately that they're very reluctant to be with each other. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if Josh had something to say about that. <laughs> no, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I think you're exactly right. And um, 
it it is so visceral to see them interact with each other and although it's like funny because of like how Mm -hmm. deeply they can cut each other i think one of my favorite lines that i uh you know took notice of when i was rewatching the film last night is uh when martha says if you existed i'd divorce you (laughs) it's like these people have the gay ability to cut into each other so starkly and horrifying that it becomes like just deeply uncomfortable to witness and uh, heartbreaking. And when I watched it with my boyfriend last night, I was telling him that I, I really felt like this movie is like an apocalypse film as well. Like the the tone of it is like really the end of the world. And in some ways, it's almost like Samuel Beckett Endgame and this uh, fiery use of language as if detonating all of the English language at once and it's like last hurrah. And uh, these characters getting even more like abstracted and evil to each other as the night goes on and they get mm-hmm. drunker and drunker. And yeah. George is like obsessed with the end of civilization, you know, when he's like interacting with uh, Nick talking about like, you're trying to make us all the same with your chromosomes and like all that type <laughs> of stuff. And like, and, uh, and, and, and you see it like he, George like draws the hard line. Like he's the one who like kills the, the child, you know, like he's the one who like, puts his foot down because the entire play like he's being like uh demeaned by martha in front of these mm-hmm. people and then he like uses that apollonian will to like put her down and put her like cut it off you know yeah because that's one of the great like uh turnabouts of the play because after witnessing um you know george she literally calls him a simp Martha calls him a simp, like, quite early in the, in the, yeah. in the, the play. Best. It's <laughs> yeah. so good. And she she views herself as, like, the all-powerful, like, female figure. Like, truly, the, like, a Polyan, like, Amazonian, like, a warmonger. Yeah. And so watching him kind of, like, flail and fight back against her and fail time and time again as she keeps besting him, it is really powerful at the end of the play when he reveals the great lie of their fake child that they've been, uh, you know, hiding behind and playing the game with. And when he, you know, severs it off and cuts it off, that's, like, really a wonderful masculine assertion of will that, like, makes him, uh, like, a human character and not just, like, some beaten-down dummy for the, the whole play. Yeah, he's and... sort of, like, a, such a, like, in the first half of the play, he's sort of, like, such a cuck to her. Like, he's really yeah. trying to, like, hold down the fort in the situation and just let her go. But I, and then the first half of the play, I'm just like, oh, my God, guy, like, like just fucking, like, tell her that she's, like, an ugly, fat pig. Like, please, for <laughs> God's sakes. And then, like, in the, I get so excited for him at the end of the play where he finally owns her and that's when they finally kind of come down off of it um but yeah it and it also is really interesting to me in the first before they kind of have the other couple over nick and honey when the first scene opens with the entrance of the main couple um that it sort of follows martha just lightly henpecking at george and sort of softly insulting him so we're informed that there's immediately a significant amount of tension between them but then once they have an audience she kind of gets more and more scathing and icy and is constantly calling him like a bog and a swamp and it's so obvious in a flop and and like flop 
it's so <laughs> it's so obvious and like it's so weird that she's like using this audience of this other couple as validation for her own insecurity because I feel on some level that like Martha is an embodiment of what George feels as sort of a failed historian because mm-hmm. she is sort of forced to be her own man in the relationship because she wanted to marry him to basically uh, carry on the legacy of her father in the university. And like George is sort of like a failed, a failed is like a professor. And she's sort of like resentful that she has to be in the man of, in the relationship. She even says in the play, I'm forced to wear the pants because I have to right. in this house. <laughs> no, yeah. And it's, this is something that I can't believe like this came out like in, in the sixties, like, because this has such a forward thinking prediction of, um, of how things would ultimately turn out. Because I think as like masculinity has like started to like come into crisis, like since like the nineties and like with like the cementation of like feminism. uh, And now that we have like new social roles, I find that a lot of women have their salary men boyfriends who they can kind of do this routine with like they go home and they, they they're Martha to their boyfriends all night and they, you know, castrate them and like dehumanize them and ridicule them and peck away at all of their will while they do, you know, like little email jobs. And the effect is not actually like equality, but this terrible warped relationship where both women and men are dissatisfied with their interactions and that Albie kind of, like, saw this and, like, put it into writing, like, in the 60s is incredible that he found, like, that horrifying note and was able to imagine it so clearly. Because now I see all of these, like, women in my life who have just absolutely, like, tragic relationships with men because they they think that they have to, you know, be on the same playing field instead of, like, letting you know, that kind of, you know, masculine note, like, take form in their partner, and, like, you know, letting themselves also be vulnerable to it, instead of just, um, taking on, like, this, I don't, I don't even know how to describe her, because Martha is just so monstrous in this play. I don't even have, like, the vocabulary to describe how, like, awful she is. Yeah, and it's interesting, because I know, I have a lot of girlfriends and uh I I actually also (laughs) like in my in my past jobs I've always like made more money than my boyfriend Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because you kind of have to make sure that you don't assume the role of the man in the relationship you have to make sure that your partner has his time in the limelight to assume control over the situation so that like he feels confident I personally feel like the role, your one job as a woman is to be on the receiving end of people's problems and administrative duties. And you have to like arrive. <laughs> the eternal you HR to, worker. <laughs> you have to, yeah, you have, and, and especially in a domestic space, you have to arrive at those problems with a sense of cheerfulness and docility, not necessarily submissiveness, but like, like be docile. And uh, if you're not docile and you're inflammatory, like Martha is, you alienate your partner and yeah, essentially like make a simp out of him. So nobody is happy in the relationship. Yeah. (laughs) One is so interesting that like duality plays such an important role. And I realized this more as I was like reading it the second time this t- like time around how duality plays into the role 
of and how like the mirroring of Nick and Honey that Nick and Honey have a very like taken aback kind of uh, way of themselves. They're very and they're very respectable. You know, they're very Midwestern. You know, they're like right, very yeah. agreeable. And um, I, I think like because Edward Albee is a gay man, he understands duality in a way that like straight people don't see because he is so outside of that. Yeah. yeah. Nick and Honey are a really interesting force in this play that, like, kind of is the genius uh, dramatic stroke that Albie introduces because we have, like, kind of what is supposed to be the ideal functioning couple there. Like, of course they have their Mm -hmm. uh, problems, but at at least initially, they're kind of, like, viewed as the inverse of George and Martha because Mm -hmm. they're both young and very beautiful and... Um, of course, Nick is, like, so hot, like, in the play especially. Like, you get, like, reading yeah. the play, you get a really clear image of the kind of man mm-hmm. Albie was imagining him to be. And she is, of course, like, doting and, like, loving and, uh, you know, very hospitable. And um, she admires her husband. Um, and what Albie does that's so genius is he doesn't let them off the hook for being perfect either. Instead, mm-hmm. he reveals that, like the entire illusions of society that people put up um, are inevitable to come crashing down and, and create these like warped, hideous monstrosities beneath the surface. Because, of course, Nick and Honey are just as fucked up as Martha and George are. And oh, yeah. for Albie to kind of show that the problem is not actually like the gender roles that these people are inhabiting or their exact problems, it's really the universal issue of people dividing themselves from their sensuality and creating uh, these ridiculous games and lies to abstract themselves from that world. The best line that Honey has is when she screams, violence, violence, violence. violence. (laughs) I, I love Honey because I feel like the scene where she gets sick and throws up I feel Which like that one? does. Well, <laughs> well, I feel kidding. like it. It does. No, it does. Um, kind of symbolize her inability to, you know, stand up for herself. She kind of symbolizes uh, everything that you know Martha lacks because Martha can't stand to be the submissive one. She can't stand to possibly be the bottom in the relationship. Yeah. And uh, you know, Honey is so clearly the bottom in her relationship with Nick and her like getting sick and throwing up kind of does symbolize her inability to assert herself and kind of be a top like Martha is. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like the fact that Honey is like such like an incapable, like she, she doesn't have any of the Martha elements about her. So because she's the exact inverse, she, of course, also falls into the same trap of creating illusions around herself and uh, her hysterical pregnancy, which actually turns out to be her not wanting the baby, basically. It's like all of those um, mistruths, she's just as, you know, vulnerable to fall into them as Martha is. And it's just as disheartening and depressing as watching, you know, Martha rip into George as it is to watch Honey, like, completely fail to be, like, any kind of, like, material person. And I, I do find myself very charmed and endeared by her. And especially in the film adaptation, I love her. I just am rooting yes. for her the whole time when she's shouting out violence. She is just perfectly played and that kind of woman continues to exist everywhere. 
the film kind of has like this surreal quality to it. Like you just like mm -hmm. cannot believe what you're watching. And like when they have the close-up shots of the actors' faces. And and that that's what I really enjoyed about the film also was that like it felt like we were watching a live production mm -hmm. play because we were having these long drawn out shots of the actors faces and their bodies and their bodies in space and how they were positioned and uh yeah it's really wonderful to watch no very in so a very true like I, very different experience reading mm -hmm. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. love reading the play and i'm like a very much an advocate for like reading books for like you know theatrical production right I, I think it's a really healthy exercise but i really do love this film adaptation because it belongs so to like good. it belongs to like a, a you know a very classic like 40s 50s 60s kind of film which is this is a play and now it's a movie and it adds very little like cinematic touches and really just presents the play on this like bizarre existential escaping where just having the characters interact with each other in the same way that it's done basically in the play it's just you know it, it creates a really intimate and like bizarre theatrical viewing experience that you never get anymore yeah, yeah exactly, like, there's, like there's these wide shots where like you're able to see maybe one couple and their interaction and then in the background you can see another interaction with a couple reacting to them so you're kind of understanding an exchange of power and the tension that's going on and then when there's like a huge reveal at times where it's extremely important there is like a very close-up and like zoom in on someone's face so you're informed you know kind of what's supposed to be happening and how you're supposed to feel um that completely measures the movement of the plot mm -hmm. um and it's like extremely dramatic kind of brings out that like uh drama that the play is supposed to bring yeah because like i'm trying to imagine them like trying to adapt slave play into a film and i'm like it couldn't be done like it wouldn't it wouldn't have the same effect well, no. okay, so why do I feel like I've had one of these nights where like I come home from a party with like my boyfriend and like maybe we invite people over and then like the drunker and drunker people get the more secrets and the more like disclosures of private information just start to like slowly pour out and then the next day you're like oh shit like I probably should not have like said that in front because, of in mixed company <laughs> because alcohol is like the great truth serum and it then it, like it it rings you back into your Dionysian animalism that is so repressed in society yes that's exactly true and especially because the film is so tightly shot and it's always like getting like so close and the shots go on for like a paralyzingly long amount of time it feels so claustrophobic and i've mm -hmm. had that feeling of you know being like drunken in a whirlwind and saying too much and like being trapped in small rooms so many times and josh like what you're saying about like this being like the the inf like the true revelation of like Dionysianism is like so true because Martha being like the ultimate like swampy like sex woman with her like inappropriate like spilling cleavage and especially with Elizabeth Taylor playing the part with her just exactly enormous knockers. she's dancing with Nick and oh, like yeah. she's so like hot. crumping so her hot. her boobs are like bouncing out of her 
jiggling. Like, <laughs> jiggling. It's incredible. Yeah, she's like a huge pussy. Like she's like a, an enormous like vagina woman. Like yeah. it just is like every woman. And seeing her reign of terror is like why like you have to understand like the Nietzschean balance between finding the artistic um you know inclinations of the Dionysian and Martha and then being able to merge it with the Apollonian like will to power of uh, of George like and by mm-hmm. the end of the film when they can finally you know meet each other in the middle and obliterate illusions we're finally able to see that merger, but the alcohol segments and the constant pouring of whiskey and the clink, clink, clink of her, like, <laughs> walking around in that, like, apocalypse forest, it's, like, this is, like, really, like, the actual reality of what it looks like to be trapped in a Dionysian, like, chaotic universe. Yeah, I think this is the best performance Elizabeth Taylor has ever given. Even all of her inflections and her gesticulations are so insanely perfect and translate so well on film. And I feel like if you even, if an actor even inspired a lot of her interpretation of Martha on a stage, it would, you know, translate just as well because it is so theatrical and demonstrative and it encapsulates exactly what Martha, the kind of woman Martha is supposed to be. And I feel like we've all sort of met this kind of woman who's constantly vying for attention by throwing her husband under the bus for her own self flattery. You know, like she doesn't have anything to, you know, flattering to say about herself. She has to like continuously throw her husband under the bus to position herself in a Mm -hmm. place of power to give an illusion of like a strong, like ball busting woman, which is very funny, but like the more and more she does it, it gets so annoying. And then you get the feeling like this woman may be resentful about something. I love in the film that you can like kind of like see Elizabeth Taylor's like old age makeup, which makes her like seem more like a drag queen performing. Yes, definitely. Which is it's it's, it's amazing to because watch. Elizabeth Taylor was thirty four years old when she played this part as like a washed up fat fifty year old like hag. And she does it so well. <laughs> she does it so well. And I think it's because Elizabeth Taylor has such a lust for life. She loved yeah. binge eating. She loved smoking. She loved drinking. She loved sex and jewelry. And she mm-hmm. has, like, so much, like, you know, she has, like, such like a hunger to, like, be alive that she is really able to, like, translate, like, that thrust of, of will into this performance and her performance is so fleshy and, like, corporeal. Especially, like, I'm thinking of her, like, just overweight. Like, her, like, chin protruding. The cakey mm-hmm. makeup and her horrifying hair. As she's just, like, chomping through chicken. Like, just, like, constantly, like, putting food into her mouth and drinking. Going, what? What a yeah, dump. Exactly. What a <laughs> dump. And then seeing her do all of that, like, lived-in, like, fatty, like, performance. And then when you see her like look Nick right in the eyes after she's just fucked him and said, well, you're certainly a flop in some departments. And she says, I am the earth mother and you are all flops. This is perfection to me. 
I mean, she's just so attuned to being her own man. She's not afraid to completely put that out on display. And it's such a example of being extremely uninhibited, especially mm. from her as a performer. Like the only way to be a good actress like that is to peel away any sense of ego and commit to the bit and go a hundred percent like go the whole nine yards and she really delivers in this role and it you know delivers exactly what Martha's character is supposed to be yeah do we know if she's like trained in the method I have no idea I know that she was working from a very young age like I think that I think from her teens she was working but I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. think uh that she like did like proper theatrical training i could be wrong about this but she's um, she's uninhibited like she's just not inhibited by anything she's like not afraid so she has like a very like sarah bernhardt quality of like i'm just gonna go for it and do it be damned what anybody else thinks and like Mm -hmm. i have like been calling for like a sarah bernhardt type actress to arise in culture but like we are it might be lady gaga honestly like it might yeah (laughs) Yeah, she commits to the bit (laughs) she does because I, when I'm thinking about Elizabeth Taylor roles, and I, I did a really special episode of The Perfume Nationalist, Elizabeth Takes Off with Jack, where we went through you know three of her movies, and she brings this oversized performance to basically everything she does. And it's this wild gesticulation in her shrill, screaming voice. And I think she's best when she's cast correctly. So when you put mm-hmm. her in The Taming of the Shrew, it makes perfect sense when mm-hmm. she's, yeah. um, you know, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. That's perfect oh, as well. Yeah, on the <laughs> genius. Yeah. yeah. And then when she's miscast, it becomes glorious, beautiful camp. Mm-hmm. Yes, like the Flintstones. The Flintstones right. movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it becomes kind of horrifying as well. And I, I think that this role, like channeling like every single beat correctly is just so riveting to watch. All of her overflowing flesh and her ruined makeup and that fucking hair as she's just desperately grinding against that jock i mean like this is gay hysteria like actualized to perfection yeah and i i think like martha and george like obviously like do come off as a homosexual couple to me like a gay male homosexual couple Mm -hmm. because they're like always expressing how reluctant they are to be together and they just sort of see each other as sort of a side piece in their trajectory in their career and they're extremely resentful of each other as like partners and um they're very resentful of of like an illusion especially like what Martha has sort of created an illusion of how she is perceived and how she is to other people. And then also like conversely, uh, what, you know, the illusion, um, you know, George has created of what he should be to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And there's like a frustration. I mean, in, in all of the characters that you feel in the limbo between reality and fantasy, what you think should be the natural success succession of what you define as a successful relationship. And then eventually what ends up naturally happening uh, when you're clamoring for power, you know, as you're climbing up this ladder to what you think is an ideal situation. And it's never sort of, you know, uh, contended with, with your partner, what's actual, actually sustainable between the two people. Mm -hmm. I think it's really special too, when you're imagining Martha as a, 
a homosexual character, the character, like, you know, channeled into the female form. Because, um, you know, like you said, she has that reluctance with uh, George, and she has, like, the fantasy of the heterosexual hot, you know, boxing Mm -hmm. champion. Like, uh, you know, when she has that fantasy for all that, like, uh, Nick and his tight body and all, like, his his Mm -hmm. weight that he's kept up, she has such a dream of it. And then, like all homosexuals, when she finally does accomplish the straight man, it means nothing. Because the Mm -hmm. actual you know, ecstasy of a gay man's fantasy for the heterosexual is in the illusion and in the distance. And then mm-hmm. when she, you know, pierces that illusion, there's nothing but ugly reality beneath it. And I think that's kind of, you know, the thesis for the whole play and, like, what kind of brings me back to, like, why I wanted to talk about this with love. Because by the end of the play, when George and Martha accept their hideous, you know, malfunctioning love for each other and use that to obliterate the fantasy and illusions that they've constructed around them. That's when we finally get a crystalline moment of, you know, true beauty that is untouched with this decadent horrors that they've been sustained with the the rest of the feature. Oh yeah, like I I honestly like it takes a very specific kind of woman to really understand Martha's character because mm-hmm. you have to understand that she's resentful, but she is doing this uh, thing where she's using the function of brandishing herself as sort of um, a victim uh, to weaponize her victimhood for any sense of self-flattery. So she's constantly, you know, making fun and henpecking at, at George for the entertainment of the other couple. And, you know, what she doesn't know is that she really just desires to be owned by George. And then when George finally does own her, essentially, she gets a taste of her own medicine and then everything kind of comes back, you know, and, mm-hmm. and where we're able to see them basically make a truce and they're essentially just you know, they've leveled each other out. Um, but it's it's really interesting because there's a constant, there is this exchange of like, who's the top and who's the bottom in this scene. And for like the first half of the, the play, Martha is consistently the top and George is the bottom. And then we see those roles kind of flip on their heads and um, it's very satisfying to witness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's why the play works so well is because in theater training, it's all about tactics and like how you're going to get what you want. Mm-hmm. And, and and like this play personifies it to such a degree. Yeah. And I mean, that's why it like it has standed, has stood the test of time. Like, yeah. And I'm thinking about, you know, I, I did my uh, Battle Royale and like Squid Game episode, uh, you know, quite a yes. few months ago, Life <laughs> is a Game. And it's like, you know, I, I said in that episode that, like, the reason that Battle Royale is such a, you know, sublime and beautiful piece of art is because in realizing, like, life as a game theory and shrinking the human experience into a diorama of little rules to be, you know, played by and, and won or, or lost at, that's kind of where we get this uh, glistening depiction of the human experience. And Albie is, like, so right to, like, frame this, like, night of, like, drunken terror in a, in a series of games because I think he also understands that kind of like game theory impulse and what you can bring to life by uh, realizing uh, relationships in life that way. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it, isn't it? And it's so interesting because like each act has a different name. Like the first act is called uh, Fun and Games. <laughs> and then the second act is called Walpurgisnacht. Oh, Walpurgisnacht. That's from, a, yes. that's, they use that in a Madoka Magica, one of my favorite, <laughs> uh, favorite anime yes. of all time. <laughs> What, what and what what is it about like what does it mean again wall- it's like uh like the yeah. like the it's like the a great monster of some kind it's like a like a knight of knight of the witch or something i think it means knight of the witch yes that mean that yeah and then and then it ends in the exorcism which like means like we're we're letting go of things and we have to purge ourselves yes we have to purge ourselves of like the the secrets and the i guess obviously in this in this case like the the lie that they've been telling themselves Mm -hmm. and the illusion that they've been telling them all of all the couples about about their their relationship and it's really interesting i think the the lie uh, they've been martha and george have been telling nick and honey about their son has sort of been this illusion that's sort of keeping them together like this weird uh you know illusion of a natural conclusion to a, a successful relationship which is a child and uh that sort of invisible um you know figure in their in the conclusion of their relationship is completely uh, you know is services a function of a huge lack um, that they equally like feel very resentful about. Um, yeah. yeah. And then you get like Martha at the end, it finally admitting who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Mm-hmm. I am like mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this incredibly like vulnerable moment. Yeah. Because yeah. Like what you were saying, terrifying. Zach, like, yeah. Like what you're saying, like, you're left with like something like sublimely beautiful of yourself, you know, mm. like of, you have to wrestle with what you have together. The stark light of dawn. It's like once it, it's funny that like the third act is, is titled exorcism and we have like George like reciting like Latin, like, I know. Yes. Yeah. It's so beautiful in the film. Yeah. Ugh. It's so beautiful in the film. And um, that, that sixties like way that it uh doesn't, overshoot like it doesn't like over direct the sequence and it like really like lets it just like happen like makes it all the more like harrowing and beautiful to see like this religious act of like george obliterating all of these lies and deceptions they've set out for themselves and when it's all been blown to smithereens uh i think it's just so beautiful that albie insists that it's not like something grotesque and and horrible like left revealed in that like cold light of dawn but it's actually like a a a beautiful and sublime thing that they're on their own in the terrible like storm of reality of uncertainties and and horror and not knowing like what's going to happen to you or what pain you're going to suffer but knowing that you're living authentically and embracing love as a way to Mm -hmm. power through it instead of illusion I just I just think that's one of the most you know wonderful like evangelian like level philosophies i've seen imparted to me in like film literature or anything else it is because like uh, kind of like in a relationship you kind of like float through the trajectory and the different energy levels you feel and a lot of it is colored by 
some sort of your own expectation of what the other person should be to you. And the other person has their own expectations of what they, of what you should be to them. Mm. And you kind of like float in that limbo and try to appease each other's expectations. But eventually what happens is, you know, you get into an argument and then somebody, you know, drops like a huge truth bomb on you that completely offends you. And like you're confronted with a reality that you've been repressing for such a long time. And you're like, well, shit, like, I guess you're (laughs) fucking right. Like, I guess I have to deal with this. And a lot of you know, reality is illustrated by, you know, being in that limbo between, uh, do I want to uh, live this fantasy or try to force an illusion that I've created for myself? Because eventually that expectation will never be fulfilled and you're going to have to be confronted with it eventually, which will ultimately be very painful. Yeah. Sucks. It sure um, does. <laughs> yeah, but uh, no, but I, I also feel like, <laughs> Um, Albie, you know, is you know, he's, um, he's adopted and I feel like the theme of the, this like invisible child that's constantly referenced in this play, I feel I like he, that, yeah. his familial pathologies are embedded deeply in the unconscious of the story because he always said that he never felt like anybody's son. He sort of felt like a nobody in that he didn't feel connected to his adopted parents or his biological parents. He's never felt like really connected anywhere. And it's that's very interesting to me. I know, I wonder like if he like, in a sense had to kill himself to a degree in this play. Yeah, I like feel like sever, he had to. I think so. To yeah. sever really himself, himself away. As a child. Yeah, to sever mm-hmm. himself away from his adoptive parents. Yes. So what's interesting, my dad is actually adopted and he's always said that he doesn't want to know or investigate his biological parents because honestly, like we just personally make up our own story about who they were. And that's just much, much better than like finding out if they were like drug dealers or if they were in or they wanted to just like give up like it's insane to like be an adopted person and think about if you want to live in the idea that you've created about your biological parents and your mind or if you truly do want to find out who they were why they gave you up and it's interesting. Most people just like don't want to know. Right. Um, and some people do want to know and then they get disappointed when they're confronted by it. Um, and I think you definitely see that that come across in the play. And what I think is interesting is that a lot of the gay playwrights of like the early 20th century have like uh, really serious questions about like illusion and mm-hmm. fantasy. Like, of course, uh, you know, Tennessee Williams with A Streetcar Named Desire and with, like, The Glass Menagerie, he was also, like, very, you know, worried about, like, how in his, you know, homosexual, like, frayed view of fantasy and the world around him, like, how to penetrate that and, like, find sublime, like, living within the net and mesh he's cast over the universe, like, the lampshade he's put over the bulb. And to see, like homosexuals like really engage with their perversion and like rip through it and harness it to say something meaningful about their own neuroses and also provide an answer to how to survive in like the net of 
imagined realities that we're all like caught like being constantly tossed between it's incredible to me that Albie actually is like able to give like an answer at the end of this and say that the way to do it is to like embrace like love and it's like misshapen form because Tennessee Williams is just like he it's just a black pill he said oh god this is it like when uh sorry not Blanche's sister what's her name Stella. Yeah, when yeah. Stella is getting fondled by uh getting fondled Stanley. Yeah, by mm-hmm. Stanley at the end of the play. Like that is just very dismaying. And like it's nice in the movie that she's like, I'm gonna leave and she like runs away. But like yeah. this what Virginia Woolf does that we don't see in like any other like questions on this theme is that it, it gives us that answer of love. And I think that's just so fucking incredible. And he's very funny about it he at is. the same time. Like he does, he's, he's an absurdist, you know, and, and even in interviews, Edward Alvey is very funny. Like when people ask him about what Virginia Woolf is about, he, he always says like, it's two and a half hours or two hours and 35 <laughs> minutes or whatever. Yeah. Like yeah. he's so, like, he just has this like very. Matter uh, of fact, like. Yeah. yeah. And I, and that is so lost in gay culture right now. And I hope. It makes a comeback. Yeah, me too. He has such an iron will as well. He's like, do not gender bend my fucking play. Do not cast my play with only men. Do not, you know, do some racialized stuff with my play to, like, make your own agenda. Like, if you want to do my play, do my play. It's I I really love that fascist approach. Mm -hmm. Yes, him and Samuel Beckett are the same way. And, like, Mm -hmm. I understand why. Because they grew up in that, like, that World War, post-war era where they saw how ideology like warped people's brains and so Mm -hmm. i'm like obviously like that's why they partially why they feel that way you know i and and people today don't see that they think like oh well why can't you do waiting for godot with women you know to make your feminist critique yeah, and you see this in the inflection notes in the play where uh, Martha will have a line of dialogue and in parentheses, you'll be informed of like why and like how she's saying that, okay, she's saying this very incredulously. She's saying this with a lot of fur, very fervently. So he's very extremely pointed about how this play should be put on, how these characters are. There is no room for any sort of, you know, creative liberties. It's supposed to be how it is, how the playwright intended. And that's usually largely what we learn in school is that we have to, you know, maintain the artistic integrity of this uh, piece of writing, how it was during this time, because it's an artifact of history. And it's a time and place in history where all of these, you know, sensibilities are informed by these characters in this cultural landscape. And we ought to preserve that. Yeah. And because if, if you decide, if you decide to abstract it and, you know, molest the play for your own, like, you know, feminist critique or, like, ideological, you know, intent, then what you do is you actually lose the power of what this play is saying, which is, like, in Mm -hmm. order to rip apart reality, you have to embrace the awkward shape of love, and you have to do it wholeheartedly and without irony. And to do something so cynical and pessimistic as to, like, reek, gender bend the play or something, it just feels so gross to me i can't tolerate it yeah it just wouldn't make sense because even if you were to gender bend the play 
uh, it, it what what's the point? What you, do you gain? The, what you don't really gain anything because the text is already in there. You know who's the top, who's the bottom, who has power, who doesn't, who gains. It it just it doesn't make sense, and especially in this historical context, it makes more sense because a lot of the uh, play is contingent on what they expect to be the natural conclusion of having a child together biologically and, and, you know, Nick and honey, not having a child and, you know, honey saying like, she doesn't want to shed like all of these, you know, really important facts about that inform the characters. Um, you know, there, there wouldn't be any point essentially. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm not opposed to like casting like women in male roles or vice yeah. versa as long right. like the way to do it is like when Glenda Jackson did uh, King Lear and in the yes. production, they mm-hmm. don't change. I, I think they don't change pronouns. I think they don't do anything and they just let her play the part as is, which is far more genius and like, you know, more interesting than, you know, oh, like, oh my God, what <laughs> if, what if Martha was a gay guy? It's like, that's already there. Martha's already gay. Uh, Martha's already yeah. a gay guy. Martha's already exactly Chi Chi. Like, I, if you yeah. put 30 pounds on me, I would be exactly like her eating that chicken and just like flouncing around the house, ripping things up and screaming. Exactly. It's, this, <laughs> it's like this narcissism that like people don't, or people like expect that they're going to have themselves reflected back to them. And that's why like we need good yeah. teachers to like show people that like, no art isn't supposed to like reflect back to you. It's supposed to like propel you forward to like something yeah. bigger than yourself. Yeah. And it's supposed to reflect back to you what you push down and repress so that you've like yeah, exactly. kept in like a tiny place in your brain that mm. you pretend that you forget about. But I think this play is all about things that we repress and we push down and we forget about that we need to be confronted with. And that's essentially reality after many years of playing out a fantasy or trying to, I mean, every day we kind of go through life telling ourselves tiny little lies just to get by, but eventually there's a compounding stress that happens similarly with what you find with these characters, the stress just compounds more and more and more and then it eventually comes to a climax where you have to confront that there's a failure on somebody's part or somebody has been lying or mm-hmm. you know saying something that or not are not saying like the lack of admitting a certain truth um, about somebody else um, that you have to reckon with yeah what's so incredible is that the theme of the play and what it tries to impart on you is, is that you you have to obliterate you know, these lies around you in order to live, you know, a a true and good life. It's just incredible to me that this play in function, like the idea of going to see it in a theater or to like go see the film adaptation, it's doing exactly what the play is, you know, suggesting. At the same time, it's both a device to break down those illusions while it's also suggesting the same thing. And that is really the, the power of incredible and moving art is that, it can actually like manifest into something that like Josh said, like propels your life forward Mm -hmm. and that this play does and like unfolds on itself that way is just, I I hope that more art can do it in the future and I'm still waiting. Yeah. And we always say that drama is about people acting, uh, Uh, basically being on their worst behavior and you're you know denying a large part of your humanity if you don't witness people 
acting on their worst impulses. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's really important to like watch people be extremely nefarious and evil and example themselves as being on their worst behavior because it's truth to the, it's, you know, putting truth to the human condition that we're a very, like evil is, it's the banality of evil. We all have capacity for being selfish and evil. And um, yeah, like it's extremely natural to do so. And I think that is what comes through in this play is that, you know, we all have the ability to deny our own responsibility for being extremely selfish. <laughs>